welcome to the very first of our bite-sized briefing podcasts. I'm Anna West. And I'm Adam Rice. And we are both Knowledge Council in the Travis Smith employment team. Our bite-sized briefings are short podcasts designed to give you a basic overview of different areas of employment law by way of learning for those who are newer to employment law or a bit of a refresher if you have more experience. Today's briefing is the first episode in our redundancy series. We're going to be talking about collective redundancies looking at when the rules are triggered and how you start off the process. So let's just start by putting this into context. It's really important to know early on whether you have to consult collectively when you're making redundancies because there are quite serious consequences if you overlook this, aren't there? Yeah, that's right, Anna, because it can affect uh, both timing and costs. So the collective consultation rules require you to consult with employee representatives if you're making 20 or more redundancies and you have to consult for at least 30 or 45 days, depending on the numbers. If you don't do that properly, then employees can claim up to 90 days pay each with no cap on that pay. So if you get it wrong, it can be quite an expensive mistake. Um, you also have to notify the government's insolvency service about the proposals before you start the consultation. And it's actually a criminal offence if you fail to do that. So the stakes can be quite high. So I guess the key to making sure you don't overlook these important rules is knowing exactly when they're triggered. Yes, absolutely. So the trigger is if you're proposing to make 20 or more redundancies at one establishment in a rolling 90 day period. The concept of proposing redundancies is worth picking up on here. Um, it means you haven't made any decisions yet. And that's really important because one of the things you have to consult about is ways to avoid redundancies. And if you've clearly made up your mind, then the process might be seen as a sham. And it's important to make sure that you have a paper trail. So your internal comms and notes, uh, which set out your reasons for the redundancy proposals. It's really important that um, these are all worded in line with them being proposals rather than decisions. So for example, talking about if redundancies go ahead rather than when they go ahead. Because if you end up in tribunal, these will be part of the evidence. So it's important that they're accurate and it's important they don't suggest decisions were made before consultation. One quite question we often get asked is how you treat uh, voluntary redundancies, because it's not always clear, is it, when you need to count these in your numbers? That's right, this can be tricky, uh, but in most cases you probably will count them because usually they will be an alternative to compulsory redundancies. So in other words, if you don't get enough volunteers, you would be making compulsory redundancies and in that situation, they will count. The only time they wouldn't is if you wouldn't be making compulsory redundancies as a fallback. So in other words, if no one volunteered, you would just go back to the drawing board and think again. That's not all that common, but sometimes it does happen. Yeah, and something else which comes up quite a bit is uh, where there might be 20 employees at risk, but it's quite likely that several of them will be redeployed in other roles. But this actually still triggers the collective consultation duty, doesn't that? That's right, it does, because you can't guarantee they'll be redeployed, of course. And even if they are, if it's a new role, it could be regarded in legal terms still as a redundancy from the old role effectively. So they will all count towards the 20 redundancy threshold, even if in the end, you end up making fewer than 20 redundancies because some people are redeployed. And it's probably worth pointing out here that the collective redundancy rules also apply where you're changing employees' terms and conditions if 20 or more people are affected. That is a whole separate topic in itself and perhaps one we'll put into a future podcast. 
I just wanted to pick up on something um, that you mentioned earlier, 20 redundancies at one establishment. That's a bit of a mouthful, but isn't that just another way of saying site? Well, broadly, yes, you're, you're right, Anna. It, um, establishment is the word used in the legislation, but effectively it means a site. So in many cases, each site will be a separate establishment. And then it's only if you have 20 more redundancies at a particular site that you have to consult collectively. But in some situations, several sites could all be one establishment and then you have to aggregate the redundancies across those sites. So for example, you could have 15 redundancies at one site and five at another and have to consult all of them collectively. So in practice, it can be quite difficult to know if each site's a separate establishment, can't it? Yeah, it really can. And there's been quite a lot of case law about it. Um, it's very fact specific and it doesn't just depend on where the sites are geographically, but also other factors like the way they're managed um, and financial and other arrangements. It's something you probably would need to take advice on, but the key point is just to be aware of it so it doesn't get accidentally overlooked when there are redundancies across multiple sites. Something else which often comes up is where all your redundancies are at one site, but uh, you make, say, 15 employees redundant now with no plans for any more at that stage, and then things change and you end up having to make, say, five more redundancies a couple of months down the line. Now that can also trigger the collective consultation duty, can't it? Yes, that's right. Um, and you don't need to go back and do anything different in relation to the 15 employees who've already gone, because when you consulted them, you didn't propose to make 20 or more redundancies. But you will need to collectively consult the five employees now because you are making 20 or more redundancies in a rolling 90 day period. You look back as well as forward. Now, they might say actually they're happy to be consulted individually because that's such a small number of people, but you would need to uh, allow them to elect representatives if that's what they wanted. And that brings us nicely on to the next point, which is thinking about who you're actually going to consult. Um, and that depends on whether there's a, um, a recognised union, doesn't it? That's right, yes. So if your organisation recognises a trade union for collective bargaining in respect of any of the employees who are at risk, then you would have to consult the trade union representatives in respect of those employees. If you don't have a union, or if a union covers some employees but not others, then you will need to arrange for those other employees not covered by the union to elect representatives. What about um, staff councils? So lots of organisations have some sort of staff council. Can you consult um, the council instead of arranging an election? Well, it depends. If the staff council represents the affected employees and has a mandate to be consulted about collective redundancies, then yes, you can. But often in practice, they don't necessarily represent everybody or it's not clear that they do. Or they were set up to discuss general business issues, but not with collective redundancies in mind. So sometimes you can use them, but probably more often than not, you'll be looking at an election. OK, so, yeah, in most cases, a non-unionised employer would have to arrange an election for the employee reps. Um, and that has to be done in quite a specific way, doesn't it? Yes, yeah, so it's up to the employer to decide how many representatives there should be and which groups they represent. So you might group employees by job title or location, for example. Then uh, the employer has to arrange the ballot, has to be secret, and all affected employees must be able to vote, including anyone who's on leave, like family leave or sick leave.
And once you've got your representatives in place, that's when you can actually start the consultation process, isn't it? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So the process is actually only started once you send uh, certain information to the reps. Um, and that information includes things like the reasons for the redundancies, um, the numbers and the roles involved, um, the selection methods, and also the redundancy payment calculations. And you actually also need to give the reps information about agency workers used in the business. And that's the business as a whole, not just the areas where the redundancies are proposed. And this feels a bit out of place, but it's a requirement which was sort of inserted by the agency worker regulations a few years ago. And last but definitely not least, uh, you mentioned earlier sending information to the insolvency service, and that needs to be sent at the same time that you're sending the information to the reps, doesn't it? Yes, exactly. It all happens around the same time. Um, the information has to go uh, to the insolvency service in a form called the HR1 form. And that has to state things like uh, how many redundancies are being proposed, who the reps are, and when consultation began. And you also need to send a copy of the HR1 form to the reps. And that starts the clock ticking on the 30 or 45 day period. Yes, so timing is a very important point. And in episode two, we'll talk through all the steps that you need to take and exactly when you need to take them to continue and complete the consultation process. So please do tune in to that. If you've got any questions about anything we've just talked about today, please do drop us a line. You can find us on our website. We'll be very happy to hear from you. Um, thanks for listening and we will see you next time.